great to see you, Journey. We are on week number four of this sermon series where we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter five through chapter seven. And we've titled this sermon series Upside Down because as we walk through the different sections of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that every time Jesus opens his mouth and he starts to talk about the realities of his kingdom, we realize that there's a reversal of values in so many ways from the things that people were experiencing then and the things that we are experiencing now. And here's what we're learning, that if we want to live the kind of kingdom life that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, our life is gonna need to turn upside down as well. I wanna recap a couple of things from my sermon last week. I promise you, promise you I won't re-preach it, especially if you were here last week. If you weren't here last week, I don't do this often, but if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to go back and watch that if you could, because the section that we looked at last week is so central to the Sermon on the Mount that I think unless we understand that fully, it's not gonna, we're not gonna understand the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount the way Jesus would want us to. One of the things that we talked about last week was this idea of this righteousness from God. What does it mean for us to be right with God? How do we have a right relationship with him? And something that the original hearers of the Sermon on the Mount would have been thinking is they would have been thinking about the law of Moses. And I need to keep the law of Moses if I'm gonna have this right relationship with God. And the people that were the best the best, best, best at keeping the law of Moses were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But here's what Jesus talked about when he talked about them. He said, they're like whitewashed tombs. They, 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 they clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside of the cup, there's gross and dirty things that are in their life and in their heart. It's like dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs. And he says, this isn't the example of the kind of righteousness that I'm asking people to live. Jesus talked about a different kind of righteousness, not just polishing the outside of the cup, but a righteousness that is actually inside out, where we live our life with the roof off in our relationship with God, that we let the light of his truth shine in to see everything that's happening. He's talking about the heart, but it's not just God seeing our heart, he can see everything. But it's about us letting other people see our heart. This righteousness that Jesus is talking about is a righteousness of our heart. And here's the thing that you've got to hear over and over and over again, is this is the kind of righteousness that Jesus calls us to. We can't accomplish this kind of righteousness on our own. We absolutely can't. That's where we have to understand the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross. There's a righteousness that is given to us. This is what we need to understand. If this is our life, in our brokenness and our shame, what the gospel tells us is that Jesus took our sin, our guilt and our shame, and he took it upon himself. He bore the penalty for our sin. He lived the life that we should have lived but then he died the death that we deserved to die. And he did that in our place. But here's the most amazing thing that he did. Not only did he take this upon himself, he gave us this. If you remember last week, I talked about 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where Paul says, God made him who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He became sin for us. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is who God sees us to be when we are in Christ. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but because Christ earned it, he deserved it, and he gives it to us. His righteousness. But as Jesus starts to talk about this life, this is who you are, when we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to talk about what does this life actually look like? If God gives us this new heart, he puts his spirit in us and gives us new life, what does it look like as he begins to live his life through us in the power of that indwelling Holy Spirit in us. What does that life look like? Well, it looks upside down. That's what it looks like. And that's what we're going to be unpacking continually throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But as Jesus steps in, I want to give a little bit of context to these next six things that he's going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've followed the Gospels, if you've watched the interactions with Jesus and the religious leaders in the Gospels, you'll see that they're constantly trying to find fault with him. Because this upside down thing, it's, created, it's messing with them. They don't like that people are following, they're listening to him. He's speaking with authority. And it's taking authority away from them. They're always looking for an opportunity to try to discredit Jesus. So they're always throwing out these theological questions to him. Well, there's this one time that there was a theological question that they threw out to Jesus, but it wasn't a hard one. Anybody could have answered it. Not just a rabbi like Jesus, anybody could have answered it. And it was simply this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's not an unusual question. The rabbis talked about it all the time. Everybody knew, it was like, it was like they tossed up a softball to Jesus. Everybody knew the textbook answer, and so did Jesus. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest, this is the first and greatest commandment. Nailed it. But that isn't what makes this particular encounter with the religious leaders so important. It wasn't how Jesus answered this question that was so important. What was so important was that Jesus didn't stop talking there. See, this love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength was talking about this vertical relationship with God. It was all about that. I show my love for God by keeping the law. That's what all the rabbis would have said. But Jesus kept talking. He says, and the second is like it. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We didn't ask you for a second. We said, what is the greatest commandment? Not commandments. But Jesus said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying it's not just about this vertical relationship with God. Righteousness is about a horizontal relationship with people. And when Jesus says the second is like it, he's not talking about second in rank. He's talking about second in sequence. Most commentators will say this is one great commandment. 
that he is talking about here. It's not love God and love people. It's just, he says the second is like it. Love God and love people. They are one in the same. We love God by loving people. And that's what we have to understand as Jesus heads into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about this heart righteousness. What does it look like to live this authentic, transparent life of the heart with people? It's vertical and it's horizontal. It's about loving God and it is about loving people. That's what it means to live a life from the heart. And here's what Jesus says as he continues to move on. Because he's going to say, and I've said this before, he's going to say over and over, you have heard it said before, but I say to you. And what he's saying is he's taking the law of Moses, the Old Testament law of Moses, and he's pulling the curtain back. Because he wants us to see the heart of God. He wants us to see the heart and the intent of what God meant by those commandments in terms of how he wanted us to live. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So they hear that. They, they, they've heard the do not murder thing before, but when Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us the intent of God, they're like, whoa, that's more. That's new. That's deeper. See, before it was always just like this. There, there was the line, do not murder. And so they, would, they could go up to that line and they could put a big check mark on it. I have not murdered. But Jesus is saying, I want you to back up the truck. I want you to start to look at the heart. I want to talk to you about anger. Because it's about dealing with the anger in our heart that actually leads to murder. I want you to start there. What is happening in your heart toward people? He says, are you angry with someone? Do you call someone an idiot? Even when you're driving, there's idiots out there, and I'm one of them. Do you curse someone? What was shocking to them was the seeming disproportion between the two things that he's talking about. Yeah, murder, I mean, we can get our minds around, yeah, you murder someone, your judgment is coming. That seems fair. But anger, calling somebody a name, the same fear of judgment in that, what is the point? What is Jesus's point? He is grabbing their attention and he's got to grab our attention too. Here's what he's saying. The horizontal matters. Relationships with people matter. How we relate to each other matters. It's not just this vertical thing with us and God. You know, you hear people say, my, my relationship with God is just a personal thing with me. It's just me and God. Jesus said, no. You and God and people. How we love and honor people that are made in God's image matter to him. Loving God and loving people. This is how the John wrote this in 1 John 4, 
starting in verse 19. He talks about the power of the gospel, the power of what it is that Jesus did for us that gives us the power and the impetus to want to live this kind of life in the lives of people around us. This is what he said, starting in verse 19. He says, we love each other because he first loved us. God poured out his love toward us in Christ to make us clean and holy before God. We, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you bowed your knee to him, you know what it's like to experience the powerful love of God. And what John is saying is because of what you've experienced, it gives you the power to be able to live that same kind of life into the lives of other people. And he continues, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Love for God, yes. Love for others, absolutely. Not two different things, one thing in the commandment of God. And just to make sure that his audience understood the magnitude of what he's saying, Jesus gives them a sermon illustration. So it's crystal clear in their mind. This is what he says. This is his sermon illustration. Verse 23. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. We've got to put ourselves in the mind of Jesus' audience there. These closest disciples of him that are gathered around, there's crowds that are there, but his closest disciples are right there. These men and women are shaking their heads. Really? Is that what you mean? Think about what a Jewish person did. It was only once a year that they visited the temple. And they came there each year to offer a sacrifice for sin. They would bring their little lamb. They would shed its blood to cover their sin for the year. They didn't have a hundred temples that they could go to. They had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Like, Like when I drove here today, I probably drove by 12 churches on my way here, could attend any one of them. They might not let me preach at them, but I could have attended them if I wanted to but they only had one temple that they could go to. So here's what we have to understand as well. This crew that Jesus is talking to, primarily they are from Galilee. So the th- what takes for them to get to the temple is it takes a three-day trip and long lines. When you think about what it is that they do when they show up at the temple, think Disneyland. Think long lines. Think hot and sweaty tunics. Think about kids that are unruly. They want to go home. It's hard to just keep your sacrifice in line that you're going to take to the altar, waiting in line. And Jesus is saying, if you're in line and you get right up to the altar and somewhere in the back of your mind, you think about somebody back home, friend, family member, neighbor, and you just realize there's, there's something between us. Jesus is saying, stop right there and go make it right with them. Go 
make it right. Seriously? They had to be asking that question. Jesus, it's three days for me to walk all the way back home, try to find this person, try to make things right with him. Three days to come back. Seriously, Jesus? And I'm here. I'm here at the altar because I want to get things right with God. That's what I care about. And so you're telling me it's more important for me to be right with people than to be right with God? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. We can't look at this, hear what he says, listen to his illustration, and come to any other conclusion that the horizontal relationships that we have with people matter to him. And they matter big time. More important than coming to him, it's upside down. Absolutely upside down. That's why Jesus would say, first go. First go and then be reconciled, then come. He's just continuing a theme that he started in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the the first sermon, we're looking at the Beatitudes. He started out by saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those people that work on right relationships with one another. He says, because they will be called the children of God. They understand the vertical relationship with God and because of that, it's extending into the horizontal. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's just step back and be honest for a second. Living this kind of life with one another, with anyone for that matter, this is hard. This is hard. I just look at my own life. When there's conflict with people, I would much rather just bury it and avoid it. Sometimes we just wanna talk about people more than we wanna talk to people. But what Jesus is saying is in my kingdom, If you're going to live in my kingdom, the pervasive lifestyle is that we actually learn how to do conflict with each other, learn to break down those walls that divide people, and that we actually learn to, as part of our spiritual life, we ponder and we pray and we try to discern, is there anybody out there that I need to get right with? Is there a wall up with anybody That's heavy. That's a lot. How do we know? Where do we even start? If we know that we've got conflict out there, where do we even start? I want to tell you where I start. I start in the relationships where I find myself having imaginary conversations. Do you ever have those imaginary conversations where there's someone that you've got something, there's something between you, and you're having a conversation in your head And it always goes really well in your head because you always know the exact right thing to say. And in any of these imaginary conversations, they're just always realizing they were so wrong. You were so right. And suddenly there's there's people that are starting to gather around and they're starting to applaud you because you finally stood up to this person. And they, they get you up on their shoulders and they carry you around because you finally did it. Am I the only one that has these imaginary conversations? I don't think I am. If you're having imaginary conversations with or about someone, you need to bring those conversations into real life. Have a real, honest, 
wall tearing down conversation with them. You know, another thing that I look for in my life when I know that I need to have a conversation, it's when I see someone or think about someone and there's something inside of my heart that goes, eh. that's what my heart does. It goes, eh. but when my heart does that, I know that there's, there's awkwardness there. There's avoidance there. If I just came around the corner and saw them in an aisle of the grocery store, I'd be like, oh, what do I say? This is awkward. Those are the conversations that we need to have. These are conversations that we need to have with God. God, where do I need to talk to people? Where do I need to break down those walls of division? This is what the Apostle Paul said. He says in verse Romans 12, verse 18, he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's a little bit of a disclaimer there. If it is possible, I wanna say that I understand. I've lived life long enough to know that sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes there's people that use, they just thrive on division and there's always gonna be some minute, trivial thing or they use it as a controlling thing in our lives. Sometimes there are relationships that we've experienced abuse in those relationships and it is not healthy for us to move toward them. Abusive or manipulative and sometimes there's just relationships out there that are not responsive. They're just not responsive to us reaching out to them. But Paul just says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, if we were to try to un unpack how do we do that, that would be a whole sermon series in and of itself. But here's what I want to do for you, is that there's a ministry out there called Peacemaker Ministries. It comes from that whole idea that blessed are the peacemakers. They've got some great resources out there to help us think about how do we actually walk toward biblical reconciliation with people that we need to. How do we do that? There's gonna be an email that's up there and it's on your notes page as well. My email address, just send an email that says peacemaker info in the memo and we will make sure that you get uh, good information from them to help you think about how do I actually start to walk this out in my life? We need help. Okay, now as if Jesus getting up into every relationship that we have, getting up into our grill about those, he gets even a little bit more personal in this next section. He jumps in to talking about our sexuality. Now here's where I want to give a preface before I say anything. I wanna say this about God. God is all about sex. He invented sex. It was his idea from the very beginning. There's a procreation side to sex, but the pleasure side to sex. That is God's idea as well. The incredible pleasure that can be experienced in the context of a sexual relationship, God's idea. Thank you very much, God. I want us to think about sexual desire, and I want you to see this picture. I want you to think about this flame here. Sexual desire that we have. This is a gift from God. It is not dirty it is not shameful. Sexual desire came from God. But here's what we have to understand if we're gonna understand God's view on sex is sex in God's mind has a context. Sex 
has a context. In God's kingdom, in his upside down kingdom, the context for sex is a covenant marriage relationship. And what God is saying is that desire for sex, I want you to keep that inside the context of a covenant marriage relationship. Because there's things that I wanna do, things I wanna provide for you, things I wanna protect you from. By keeping that desire inside that context, I wanna use that to bond you to another person. The Bible talks about us becoming one flesh with another person. And I'm imagining that there might be some people right now that are just like, oh my gosh, this guy is so naive. Could he please come to the 21st century? Maybe you're rolling your eyes. Well, I think Jesus' followers right then were probably rolling their eyes as Jesus starts to unpack what he thinks about in the kingdom as it relates to sex. Here's what he says, verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Whoa. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So as Jesus is talking about sexuality as it relates to his kingdom, he's talking about adultery. And adultery, he's just talking about any kind of sexual relationship outside of the context of a covenant marriage relationship. Remember, sex has a context. The context of marriage. That's where sexual desire belongs. And let me just say this. Inside the context of marriage, let this flame get big. Stoke the, some of you need to hear that today. Not suppress desire. You need to stoke the fire of your sexual relationship inside the context of marriage. But here's what Jesus is talking about as he's talking about adultery. He says, here's the line. Don't cross into a sexual relationship outside of a covenant marriage relationship. But then he backs it up. The way he continues to back it up. And he said, what does it look like to live this kind of life? My kingdom kind of life. He backs it up all the way, past the heart even, and he goes all the way to the eyes. Thinking about our eyes. Because here's what he knows. Our eyes, when we see things, what that starts to do is it starts to use our mind and our imagination that God has given us, but we can use it in ways that are outside the bounds of what God wants. We use our imagination to move to a place of fantasy. We start to think about sexual relationships outside the context of marriage. And then he's saying what that does is that goes to a place in our heart where it starts the seeds of desire that started with our eyes, went to our mind, now is in our heart. And now our heart wants to move toward sinful behavior. The heart wants what it wants. And so what Paul is saying, or what Jesus is saying, he's saying, go all the way back to where it starts. Start with your eyes. If it's your eye that causes you to sin, gouge it out. This is how I think Jesus would want to say it. If you want to protect the desire 
Protect the desire that I've given you, then learn to protect your eyes. Put, put things around your eyes that keep you from stepping outside the bounds. If you don't wanna jump off the cliff, what Jesus is saying, then don't get close to the edge. Start with your eyes. Learn to control your eyes. Now, I've gotta believe as well, as people are hearing this, they're just thinking, do you know what kind of a world we live in? Do you know the sexually charged culture that we live in? Where images are just being bombarded at us. Sexual images continuously. Yes, I know. I live in that exact same world. And it bombards you in places that you wouldn't even expect sometimes. I was thinking about when my son Josiah was young. He was probably, I think he was about 10 years old. We were watching the Super Bowl. Dad just wants to watch Super Bowl with his boys. And a Doritos commercial comes on. I mean, obviously a Doritos commercial is safe, right? Well, in this Doritos commercial, here's what's happening. When he takes a bite of a Dorito, something awesome happens for him. The first time he takes a bite of a Dorito, this ATM that's on the side of the street starts spilling out money. And it's like, yeah, he's so excited. Well, then the next scene, he's got another Dorito and there's this beautiful woman that's walking down the street, kind of doing her thing. <laughs> he takes a bite of a Dorito and her clothes fly off. So she's just standing there, nothing but a bra and her underwear. My son is sitting beside me on the couch and all of a sudden his eyes just get huge and he like looks at me like, what in the world? And I'm looking at him because I, I'm kind of shocked at what just happened there. I could not think of what to say to my son. The only thing that came out of my mouth was, buddy, mom just buys us the regular Doritos. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else to say. But we live in a world where we are bombarded. You can find sexual images with two clicks of your cell phone right now computer, anything that you want to see is out there. The things that cause our heart and our mind to go to places that God doesn't want us to do, it is right there. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to learn to guard that. We've got to put guards up around the things that we see if we're going to stay away from the things that God wants us to stay away from. And living in our culture, I realize that that is completely upside down. It is completely upside down. But what I believe Jesus is saying is if you want to have fulfillment, especially around sexuality, the way I intended for you to have fulfillment, we've got to learn to deal decisively with these things. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. I think Jesus is obviously speaking with hyperbole there. But what I do think is true is that we've got to cut some things off from our life and the culture. We can't just let everything that the culture wants to impart on us, come into our life, come into our homes. We can't watch every movie that's out there because it will start things in our mind. We can't watch every series on Netflix because it will start things in our mind. I was having lunch with a friend of mine and I hadn't seen him for several years and I had I hadn't kind of lost track of how old his son was and what he looked like. And so I asked him, I said, are you on Facebook? I'd love to look up some pictures and see what your son looks like. And his response to me was, 
I am not gonna be on Facebook. He said, did you know that the number one way that people are having, an, having affairs or that reconnecting with old flames and old friends on Facebook? He says, not gonna do it. And you might think, well, that's just extreme. It's just social media. Maybe it is extreme. But he's just saying, I don't wanna jump off the cliff. I'm not gonna see how close I can be. I wanna be as far away as I can. And, and I, I know that I'm on thin ice here because I think if we tried to legislate all these things for all of us, it would be super, super challenging. But I think what needs to happen for all of us is that we have honest conversations with God. What are those things that cause me to stumble? What are those things that cause my mind to go to places that I do not want my mind to go? Don't try to walk up to the line. If you don't wanna jump off the cliff, don't walk up to the edge. We've gotta put guards around our eyes. The second thing that I think that we've got to do if we wanna to move towards sexual integrity in our life is we've got to have conversations with people. We've gotta talk about the things that are happening. I'm gonna hold this cup glass up again. We've got to have the kind of relationship with God where his light is shining in, seeing what's in our heart, but we've gotta have the kind of relationship with people where we're letting people see in. And it doesn't have to be everybody, but friends, it has to be at least one person. If you want to move towards sexual integrity, if you want to grow, if you want to see progress in this area in your life, you've got to bring other people in. This is how James said it in James 5.16. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If we want to have healing in our life, around sexual issues in our life, we've got to bring other people in that we confess to, that we allow them to see in and we allow them to pray for us around these things. And then he says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I can't explain how this works or why this works, but I've just seen it work in my life. Not just around issues of sexuality and sexual sin, but any kind of sin. The sins that I only confess to God, I tend to repeat. But the sins that I actually am brave enough to just open up my life to at least one other person and let them look in, those are the ones that I start to see change from the inside out. We need to be together in this. We need to have those kind of relationships. If you would commit to do one thing for me, not necessarily for me, actually I think it's for you, but this is the commitment I would love to ask you to make. Would you find that person? Whoever it is, that maybe it's just one person, maybe it's a couple people, but you'd be willing to open up the curtain of your life and let them see in and let God bring change from the inside out. Friends, we've got to do this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that we can be healed. I wanna give you, there's just a practical way you can do this. You can grab this on your way out. There's a sheet that's called a life group. And it's just a way for us to begin to think about how do we build this kind of a rhythm in our life where we've got someone. It can't just be a one and done thing. This got, has to become the normal rhythm of our life. Am I opening up my life 
to other people? Am I learning with them to hear and respond to what it is that God is saying to me about all areas of my life? Are we learning to do that together? Are we confessing our sin to one another so that we can be healed? Are we talking about and praying for how we can love people in this world the way that Jesus loved people? Friends, would you, will you commit to find that person or begin to pray now, God, would you bring that person into my life? Would you do that? Will you make that commitment? If we're gonna be the kind of people that live this kind of life, this upside down kingdom life, we've gotta continue to be those people that live life with the roof off, letting God shine his light in, We need to learn to be people that live life with the walls down, letting others see in. That's what this Sermon on the Mount, that's what this section of the Sermon on the Mount, living life from our heart, a heart righteousness before God with the roof off and the walls down. I wanna give us just a moment. The band's gonna come up and they're just gonna probably be playing some soft music. Would you start to have a conversation with God right now? What is the next step? that he would be asking you to take in the things that we've talked about today. When Jesus ended his sermon in Matthew chapter seven, he said this, he said, the wise person is the one who hears these words of mine and puts it into practice. When the storms of life come, he said they're not gonna be washed away because their life is built on a foundation. Start building a foundation today. What is it? that the Father would be saying to you that he wants you to put into practice. I wanna give God the last word in your life today. God, today with my friends, I want to just declare my dependence and our dependence upon you. If we're gonna be the kind of people that you've called us to be, that live with a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that comes from our heart. You're gonna need to do that. But God, we boldly wanna hold our hearts up to you today and ask you to move. Would you show us what needs to happen in our heart to live out the kingdom realities that you've called us to? How do we get right with people tear down walls that need to be broken down? How do we move towards sexual integrity in our life and guard our heart and our eyes and our life from the things that are destroying us from the inside out? God, would you help us with that? God, we need you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.